where we explore compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this week we'll be exploring the theme of play in The Hunger Games and The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Yeah. I'm very excited for this theme because it's Hunger Games... It's not what you normally think of. Exactly. We, I think we have amazing discussions about all of the real world implications and systemic hierarchies and oppression that we see in the Hunger Games. Amazing discussions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it'll be fun to look at the ways that play and fun kind of come into the characters and interactions in the... To the horrible world of Pan Am. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to start us off, we have a quote. This quote comes from Catching Fire and is in the midst of the 75th Hunger Games when after Katniss, Peeta, and Finnick have been damaged by the poisonous fog, they finally get some ointment that can help to soothe their pain and itching. But it's not exactly the most attractive ointment that they've seen. And so we see Katniss and Finnick having some fun with that. I can't help enjoying his distress. Poor Finnick. Is this the first time in your life you haven't looked pretty, I say? It must be. The sensation's completely new. How have you managed it all these years? He asks. Just avoid mirrors. You'll forget about it, I say. Not if I keep looking at you, he says. We slather ourselves down, even taking turns rubbing the ointment into each other's backs, where the undershirts don't protect our skin. I'm going to wake Peta, I say. No, wait, says Finnick. Let's do it together. Put her faces right in front of his. Well, there's so little opportunity for fun left in my life. I agree. We position ourselves on either side of Pia, lean over until our faces are inches from his nose, and give him a shake. Pita. Pita, wake up, I say in a soft sing-song voice. His eyelids flutter open, and then he jumps like we've stabbed him. Ah! <laughs> Finnick and I fall back in the sand, laughing our heads off. Every time we try to stop, we look at Peta's attempt to maintain a disdainful expression, and it sets us off again. By the time we pull ourselves together, I'm thinking that maybe Finnick O'Dair is alright. At least not as vain or self-important as I'd thought. Not so bad at all, really. Oh, they're becoming friends. Yeah, it's cute and legitimately funny. Yeah, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> I would definitely do something like that. Totally. And I, I appreciate the, like... Peta is attempting to look disdainful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks it's funny too. Exactly. And yeah, this is, I think, a turning point where Finnick has slowly become more and more likable, trustworthy, and here they, yeah, they're, they're becoming friends in a way. They're, they're building bonds in a way through play, through having fun together. Yeah, and it's, it's such an interesting moment to think about. This is happening during the 75th Hunger Games when all of these victors are fighting to the death again yeah. and it's with it's, their friends exactly it's such a depressing thing in her mind she is not going to walk out of this alive because mm -hmm. that isn't her intention going in she wants to save Peta, and so it's such a counterintuitive place for there to be just fun and laughter and joking and friendships building in a circumstance like this totally it also makes me think i wonder how much just the fact of the ointment helps where mm. the itchiness that they feel and the scabs that they have are kind of symbolic of just the awful lives that they live and something that gives them even a moment's respite even a moment's kind of soothing is something to treasure and to celebrate and to lean into as much as they can and so Katniss 
a character who is so regularly not a joking character from what we see is one who takes advantage of that, who sees this as an opportunity for fun that she so rarely has. Mm-hmm. Well, and it says that in the line, there's so little opportunity left for fun in the rest of what she expected to be the next couple of days of her life yeah. that she had left to live, that I wonder if part of it was there as well, that I don't have to worry about keeping anyone alive. Like, I mean, yes, PETA, but like, I don't have to worry about keeping myself alive. I don't have to worry about getting back to my family. And mm-hmm. if I don't, you know, these different things happen. Like all of these other burdens that she's had for so long to to be responsible for at such a young age. In this moment, she doesn't really feel like she has them. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing for me on this quote is I appreciate how Finnick is so able to lean into these jokes about the persona that he has built up and that's been built up around him of, oh, he is this attractive, beautiful person Mm -hmm. and how he can so easily bounce off of her and work with her in these, I think, genuinely funny jokes about that idea of him, which in the next book we see deconstructed so masterfully. But here we're already seeing more complications than just he's a pretty boy. Yeah, absolutely. But we should head into our analysis. And so what character did you bring to discuss today? Yeah, so I decided to bring Lucy Gray. Interesting. Because... We meet her character and she is in this bright, colorful dress and it's so outside of anything that you ever see at Reapings. And she's wearing makeup and she has her hair up and then she sings this song. Again, not something that ever happens. Mm-hmm. Your name is called. You try to hold it together as best you can until you're behind closed doors. And, you know, that's the way not only that it had been done before but also up until Katniss's day you know all of these decades later that's still how things are run Mm -hmm. and she does something different she sings and she loves singing and she does it because she loves it but she also does it to be defiant to defy the capital and she also like when she's being kept in the cage at the zoo she sings one because she loves it and she likes the spotlight and it's fun for her and she likes entertaining but also because it's strategic she mm. can get people to like her and then they can bring her food so the last few days of her life she's not starving and then the rules change and people can send food or helpful things while you're in the arena i mean i think it was just food at, the, at that point but then it's strategic again for her to keep singing in her interview and even in the arena. So it's interesting because I think she has this enjoyment of this activity, which can be a part of play, can be a part of entertainment. But I feel like oftentimes in the world of Panem, things aren't just simplistic and they only have one purpose. They, they don't only have the fun part, but it has to also serve a survival factor as well. Mm. And even when she's in the zoo and the camera crew is coming around and stuff, she, you know, acts like, oh, I didn't even realize you were there. Like, I was just doing this thing over here, you know, and... So nice to see you. Exactly. 
<laughs> did I have my best side forward this whole time? <laughs> uh, and uh, she's like, if anyone has any extra food, you can bring it down to the zoo, you know. And, and she says, it'll be no fun watching the games if we're all too weak to fight. And so it's interesting and it's smart tactic for her and everything. But it's also, and not just for her because she wanted the other people to have something to eat as well, yeah. the other tributes. But it's also playing into this idea of what's fun for the audience mm -hmm. which is one be entertained by her and two have more entertaining fights when the games actually start and i think another aspect of play comes in and i think more of an aspect that's a little less intertwined with the complications of being performative and and having to serve that strategic angle is once she's won the games she's back in district 12 and she gets to be back with her family again mm -hmm. and regardless of the suffering and hardships that she personally and also the Covey in general have have faced they create music together and they play concerts and they go for hikes and swims in the lake and in general seem to have this attitude to not take life too seriously like not let the terrible things that they've been through crush them mm. and whether that's they choose to naturally just bring levity into their daily lives because that's part of their personalities and their culture or whether it's intentionally brought in um i think it's it's done regardless of the po poverty and oppression and marginalization that they face and obviously not everybody can do that not everybody has the capability to do that but with them and with their community i think it's it's really cool to see because i think in the original trilogy we didn't get to see that as much we saw the you know kind of squalor and and suffering of the people of district 12 and yeah even all of these kids it's it's such a serious circumstance they they have the games looming over them all the time you know and and so i don't think we always got to see as much people really taking enjoyment out of things and activities together and so yeah i really appreciate that we got to see that with lucy gray and the covey and that with lucy gray we got to see her yeah be actually really passionate about something and that also provide entertainment and community solidarity and helped the, the social fabric of district 12 especially the scene yeah as you're talking one of the things that came to my mind was was how Lucy Gray's performances are so impactful and so interesting to watch because they have a level of sincerity to them. Mm -hmm. Because even as she is clearly manipulating the audiences and performing for those audiences, she is still an entertainer by choice and by culture. Mm -hmm. She is still someone who, when she goes back to District 12, she rejoins her family and becomes an entertainer in her own way again, because this is yeah, part of her identity and her life. And, and I think that she enjoys doing it from what we see. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's really striking because where I see her using that as a tactic in the 10th Hunger Games, where she has these natural strengths and skills 
to be able to perform, and she uses that for her advantages there. It also is, in a way, a catalyst for the capital to see how useful that is for Mm -hmm. their aims. And so by the time Katniss is in the Hunger Games 64 years later, that type of performance is expected Mm -hmm. of any tribute. Yeah. And it's part of the way the games are manufactured as a whole. And... That's and so not... then it loses the sincerity for exactly. a lot of people. I mean, Cinna drew <laughs> the talent for Katniss. <laughs> all, all of the clothing designs, fashion designing that supposedly happened was just her. And then Peta, it's just him literally giving himself art therapy. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Oh, way to process his trauma. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I think that that's, that's really, really interesting. And, and another thing that I didn't even notice I think in our read-along of Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes last year but that is another way in which Lucy Gray's character is so essential in the history of the Hunger Games Mm -hmm. because it wasn't just Snow who transformed the games after the 10th games but oh no it's absolutely so much her yeah and in in this really tragic way yeah because yes of course you don't want to be starving the few days up before you're going to be killed and you don't want all of these other kids sitting in this cell with you to be starving as well but then yeah how did that negatively impact everyone after and and this entertainment that it could provide then kept the games going when they were kind of not watched by the capital citizens and yeah yeah for her the the entertainment the play was a matter of agency Mm -hmm. but after her it becomes a matter of commodification. Mm-hmm. Just another way to take agency away. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. But why don't we move on to your plot point? What do you have for me? I want to talk about nicknames in the Hunger Games series. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because they can so often be representative of relationships and the way that those relationships can evolve at times. And that's certainly how mm-hmm. they're used here. In fact, Katniss is herself introduced through a nickname. Mm-hmm. The first time we hear her name is after it's mispronounced purposely by Gail when he calls her Catnip. And she's like, actually, my name's Katniss. But that nickname that Gail gave her, which came about from their own history and him mishearing her, it also, I think, has a lot of weight behind what their relationship kind of entails. Frankly, it's pretty flirty. I would say, and I don't think Katniss recognizes that. She never says that because from her perspective, that's not why he calls her that. But I think from his perspective, yeah, it's it's saying that she's desirable. It's saying that she's alluring, that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's these kinds of... I never thought of that. I just thought like, oh, this is funny. We're just going to keep using it. But maybe I'm a little too much like Katniss there. Maybe, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe I'm a little too much like Gail where, you know, I see... Are you anything like Gail? I'm not much like Gail, but at least in <laughs> coming up Seeing with funny any flirting opportunities to flirt with me. Exactly. And taking them, yeah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. I will do those. <laughs> <laughs> and we also see how it shows how close they are together because he seems to use it at times where it's not purposeful. It's not about trying to be flirty, but it's just about the way the relationship exists. When she volunteers for Prim, he uses it. When he wakes up after she kisses him, when she realizes that she loves him um, after he'd been whipped, he uses it in his drug-addled state. And he uses it at the end of 
catching fire when she wakes up in District 13 and he has to tell her that District 12 has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. But he never uses it in Mockingjay, which I think is really interesting. Mm, Very interesting. That after she's gone through all of the trauma she's gone through and after the vulnerability of PETA becomes so central to her agency and her her desires to become the Mockingjay and to do everything that she does, he doesn't have that same relationship with her anymore. They, they, they enter a war in a way that they weren't at before. Mm-hmm. And that changes, I think, their relationship in a way that's nuanced. She never says, he never called me catnip again. He just doesn't do it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, their relationship just changes because they start fighting a lot mm. more because he is working for coin and he's following the rules and he's doing these things and... Katniss is like, why? You know, and, <laughs> and why are you fine with killing all these people? You know, they, they come to a head, I think, a lot ideologically yeah. in, in that book in ways that before this... it was just him raging about the Capitol, but like none of those things could actually be carried out. And now this is being planned to be carried out against not just people at random, but also some of the people she knows now. Yeah, the stakes are much higher. Mm-hmm. And that leads to real schisms and and leads to a place where schisms that's a good word <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> uh where yeah putting they... that grad degree to use <laughs> where i just think that it, it's it's illustrative of them growing up in a way mm-hmm. um another nickname that katniss has though is sweetheart <laughs> is that a nickname or is that just hamish being annoying <laughs> yes <laughs> it is both but he only uses it to katniss and He uses it in a way that I think is also very interesting because it becomes emblematic of his relationship with her. So much so that when PETA is camouflaged in the 74th games and she's looking Mm. for him, he calls her sweetheart to let her know that he's around. Mm -hmm. And she even thinks, you know, no one else would call me Hamish's awful term of endearment (laughs) or, or whatever it is. But also, he kind of only uses it when he's, like, annoyed at her. <laughs> Typically, <laughs> Which yeah. Which is most of the time. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's, it's clear that, he, that she hates it. Yeah. And so, that makes him use it more. And yes. she realizes this because when she starts thinking about what he's trying to tell her through sending her gifts at different different times and not sending it at other times, she uses sweetheart in this imagined quotes that he is sending to her. <laughs> That's true. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just, I think it, it does give so much kind of weight to those statements when mm-hmm. he says it. And so, yeah, I, I was coming in prepared to, to think about that, but I, I wanted to look to see when el- all the times he uses it. And I was surprised to find he also uses it when he comforts her, when mm-hmm. she breaks down because she realizes that Peter will be tortured for everything that she does mm-hmm. as the Mockingjay. He holds her and he says, I know, sweetheart, and not in a way. This is a time when she breaks down and can only reach out to him. She wants, she actually asks for him because he understands what she's going through and he shares her love for PETA. And he does this in a way that's not demeaning her or or sarcastic. Trying to get a rise out of her. (laughs) Exactly. It's actually comforting. And so, again, I think it's it's an interesting evolution of how this nickname is used. Mm Mm-hmm. The last one I have is a nickname that Katniss gives, which is Little Duck for oh, yeah. Prim. Mm-hmm. It, it helps establish in the first book how Katniss sees Prim mm-hmm. as someone to take care of, someone she has to tuck in, but also someone who she can have this playful relationship with. She says that 
you know, after Prim says quack in response, <laughs> that she gives a laugh that only Prim can bring from her. And this is before the games. Before <laughs> yeah. the games, no one else can really bring that kind of lightness to Katniss. And so this relationship is clearly very special to her. And it's also what she realizes that she loses in Mockingjay when Prim is making clear that she is herself a competent young woman. Mm-hmm. Where Katniss says, the li- this at 13. L- at 13, mm-hmm. but still, but still yeah. the little duck is gone. She can mm-hmm. give me wise advice. She yeah. can do these medical procedures that I am grossed out by. She can do these kinds of things, and she's not just this girl to be taken care of. I mean, when your sister goes into the Hunger Games, and you also are living in District 12 in general, you're probably going to grow up faster. Absolutely. Yeah. But Katniss doesn't stop using it. She does still call her duck as a way of endearment and showing that their love continues. And I think that arguably the most powerful moments used is after this, it's been kind of set up as this establishing connection between them is when Prim is identified as one of the medics who gets killed at mm-hmm. the end of Mockingjay. She's never named. Katniss never says, I saw Prim. She says, I saw a golden hair and the duck shirt hanging out the back and that's how she knew it was her but she never says i knew it was prim i knew it was you know she, she's never named she really she doesn't say it. i remember because oh. i've had to go back and be like oh i get it it's prim because i forgot about the ducktail thing hmm. my first time reading through and yeah she's not named but that imagery that view of prim still having the back of her shirt untucked which you can only see because she's taking her jacket off to help someone who's injured before she is killed, I think is a really great example of the inhumanity of the decision to kill these children, these medics, and the fact that it is children being killed here. It is a child in Prim and the other medics who are there. So yeah, I see that this relationship as made manifest through this nickname that was given to Prim being one of the ways that she's described before she's killed as just really powerful. And I think showing the power of that as a metaphor for their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Also, speaking of nicknames, it's kind of interesting because all of these ones that you've mentioned are very personal. I mean, Sweetheart isn't personal like the other two are in the word, but in the use of it, it is yeah. But then you have Girl on Fire mm. and you have Lover Boy mm. as these two nicknames that are given by the capital to Katniss and Peta, which are quite accurate <laughs> uh, because this is this goes to be a symbol of Katniss. Um, it goes to be a symbol of this revolution. And for Peta, I mean, this is all of these things that he's been doing this whole time you know like that is a a core part of who he is but it can't be the same sort of play because it's given by the capital it's it's given and it's a fun thing for them to do and to use and to joke about and to like because it endears them to the capital citizens but it doesn't come from a personal relationship and it's not used by their friends exactly i mean except i guess Cinna uses it a little but he also is the one who kind of created that but there i think yeah and it's less of a 
kind of endearment and more of a political statement. Exactly. It's because he sees what she's actually doing yeah. rather than, oh, her dress was really cool. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I am an ally. I am a follower. I am someone who wants to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we move into our compelling questions? So what did you have for me? So I'm just wondering what moments of play are striking to you in the books and that can be because you just enjoy them so much it can be like we were talking about earlier with the quote it it comes at this time when it would be one of the most stressful times ever you know you're in an arena yeah definitely one of the ones for the latter of being a kind of slice of levity at a time of distress is when Finnick starts posing when he's in his underwear. <laughs> yes. Also one of my favorite moments it's of Mockingjay. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Where he he himself is is in a way coming out of his stupor and in, in, in out of a, a traumatic episode that he's experiencing. And, you know, when she's like, put on some pants and he, she says like, he kind of realizes and then immediately goes into like, oh, am I distracting you? Yeah. Do you find this too distracting <laughs> as he strips off his hospital gown so he's just walking away in his underwear? exactly yeah that's that's just delightful so yeah i i appreciate that very yeah, much yeah and that was that's also really striking because first he was like wait why can't i go with you mm-hmm. and he like he couldn't see how not okay he was mm-hmm. and that you can't go into a place where it could be dangerous but then he like just took it you know he, yeah. he took like oh i'm not wearing pants <laughs> but <laughs> i can do something funny with this and like right after that katniss started seeing the the person that she had met at the quarter quell again and i think it's kind of to show like how yeah how much trauma had happened initially and and maybe he always would have been funny and charming and teasing and stuff but i think it probably very much also was a coping mechanism Mm. I have a very dark sense of humor and that's the type of thing that I do about, you know, my own health issues or whatnot. But then to see him lose that for a bit because of being re-traumatized by having to go through this again, then still getting glimpses of him being able to do it. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Oh, striking. (laughs) Oh, Fennec. I love Fennec. Another one that comes to mind mostly because we are considering it as our quote Mm -hmm. is the scene where Katniss comes back in Catching Fire after having had to to jump over the electric fence Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. basically she comes home has two peacekeepers there and she starts explaining why she wasn't there lying and everyone there plays along with it and in that playing along with it they're also teasing each other they're also disagreeing they're having a fake disagreement (laughs) where they're messing with each other and teasing each other in order to placate these peacekeepers and it's just such a, a an amazing scene Honestly, it was like two and a half pages long, which is why we couldn't include it as I know. our quote. We really wanted to, like, because oh, the whole thing is amazing. <laughs> yes. It's in chapter 11 of Catching Fire. <laughs> go read it. Go. You can pause. <laughs> okay, now that you're back. <laughs> but yeah, it's great because 
it shows, again, how close they are, how a- mm-hmm. able they are to work off of each other and, and be on the same page. She, she mentions in that scene how this is how Hamish and Peta have survived, is that they have these skills where they're able to, to run with things. But Prim's able to as well. Prim's able to go along with it and be talking about where they were supposed to go to talk to someone about a goat. And <laughs> no. Well, we're, we're not sure how much Prim understands what Katniss actually was doing versus if she really did think that it was at the west gate not the east gate or whatever or we're not totally sure but i definitely read it as she would know why peacekeepers are there and and probably what katniss was doing because she's been hunting their whole lives and so i i read it as prim basically knowing what's going on and going along with it and 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 i think that's really impressive for yeah at this point 12 year old girl yeah i think because she's 12 i always assume that Maybe she didn't understand everything that mm. Peta and Hamish were doing, but who knows? It doesn't say. That's true. We can read it as we wish. Yeah, but it basically ends with Hamish stuffing a bunch of candy in his mouth, <laughs> Katniss yelling at them that none of them deserve any candy, and uh, Peta placating her and telling her she's right, even though everyone knows that <laughs> she's fake wrong. Which it's, is... It's excellent. But it also ends with, it's being so clear that they're successful that she starts messing with the peacekeepers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's also excellent. Yeah. She's Playing like, innocent, like, yeah. oh, it's electrified now? It wasn't electrified before? Oh, we can all sleep safer knowing that that security <laughs> has been repaired. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, great. It's excellent. <laughs> So yeah, that that's definitely another another scene that comes to mind. Were there other ones that you were thinking of? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about in catching. There's so many are in Catching Fire apparently in in the actual Hunger Games when the tribute from District Six is dying and she had saved Peta's life and Peta had spent time painting. Mm-hmm. with her and the other person from her district and in those last moments of her life Peter is talking about colors and she uses her own blood to like paint mm. i think a flower on his face and it's just so striking that even in that moment of death there was a moment of play that she was doing something she enjoyed in in those last moments yeah bringing beauty and and yeah joy into it mm-hmm. yeah that's nice. Yeah. As nice as being killed by mo- monkeys can be when you're forced into arena to fight to the death after you've already had to do that. Exactly. It's yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking about just like the fact that they're called the Hunger Games. You know, it's mm. like this idea of games and how they're definitely not games. <laughs> there is not a ton of tactics you can use. You don't get any more chances at it. It's a one chance thing. I mean, except if you're in the quarter quell, apparently. So yeah, it's it's disturbing, obviously, that it's called games, but I think for the capital citizens, like how gambling is involved and you can like bet on different tributes and who you think will win and that like they're bringing a game to this thing that's called the games and how in the 10th hunger games they they brought in lucky flickerman to be the host and he did some like magic tricks <laughs> and you know just ridiculous stuff because games is in the title but they have to insert aspects of games in because it 
to nothing like games. Mm. Wow, yeah, that that just blew my mind. I somehow didn't think about this at all, considering <laughs> I just did my huge graduate research project on the Olympic Games of 1932, <laughs> but now that's all I can think about. I, I feel a takeaway coming on. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll, I can save that for then, because, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's very insightful. Look at you putting your grad school to use when I remind you to. <laughs> yeah, and I, I honestly feel a little ashamed that I didn't think of that myself. <laughs> that happens to Well, I mean, maybe it's good that you don't associate the Hunger Games with games. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you aren't the capital. <laughs> there. <laughs> well, I imagine that it might have some overlap, but I was wondering why you think the other tributes make so many jokes at Katniss's expense. Mm, I don't know. I, I, I do wonder if part of it is, yeah, this coping mechanism. They have learned to joke about things because their life is so horrific in so many ways most of the time and so when they can laugh they do laugh because otherwise you're just collapsed on the floor miserable and can't get up and so yeah I could imagine that some of them would just kind of develop this sense of humor that's not only just jokes and stuff but is kind of at people's expense so it's like it's not just completely nice sense of humor Mm -hmm. because they're too jaded for just nice (laughs) jokes you know Uh, so I don't know that that's kind of my first thoughts. I mean, also they've been victors for a while doing this over and over again, coming back to the capital to see these horrible things happen to other people. And Katniss is very not a part of that cultural bubble or that cultural experience. And so they're like, oh, this person is so different than us, (laughs) which not that it's nice to make fun of people because they come from a different culture than you and they are not like you, but I think that's probably one of the reasons. Yeah, PETA kind of talks about how it's because she's pure, and, like, I don't necessarily know if I buy that. I I see it more as she's serious, and their relationships definitely don't seem serious, in large part probably because, yeah, it's a coping mechanism, but it's also this thing that they're forced to do every year, and I can imagine it being almost like a hazing kind of thing of like, oh, here's the new person, especially a new person who is as in the spotlight as she is, but to engage with her, see how she could or could not engage with those kind of cultural aspects of their relationships with each other. Yeah, it's interesting because the ways in which they were kind of making fun of her were all sexualized Mm -hmm. in one way or another. And so I could see that there being something and maybe he's using the word pure here instead of like a prude, you Mm. know, because I think that's how I always read it of what he was getting at because she would never want to wear like really revealing things. She doesn't, doesn't even want to wear dresses most of the time. You know, it's like she likes pants and her dad's hunting jacket and, and doesn't like being exposed or looked at or in the spotlight in general yeah and so that's how i always kind of read that but yeah i'm I'm not sure i mean obviously peter was also like a 17 year old so he's not gonna understand everything that's going on either (laughs) (laughs) you seem pretty pure yourself (laughs) peter hashtag best boy peter yeah (laughs) 
I wonder also if, if the other reason is for it to be ways for them to kind of size her up for those who know that she's going to be an essential part of the resistance mm-hmm. and them knowing that they're being surveyed and so they can't just come out and actually have genuine engagement with her and, and start building that relationship. They have to do it through ways that are performative themselves. And so sometimes this kind of jocular fashion can be a way of, of seeing how she reacts to certain things and, and getting a read on her while also performing the personas that they've built up over their time, you know, Finnegas in particular. I mean, exactly. It's like how many of their relationships aren't performative mm. entirely? It must be mostly that because they don't even want to get close to anyone else because that's another person that can be used against them yeah. and weaponized. And also I wonder if part of it is just them wanting to kind of see if she is what she seems like she mm. is. Is she going to be authentic with us when we do this or is she just going to like play along when we can tell that that's not her personality? <laughs> you know, like I don't know, like maybe they're trying to figure out how much they can trust her or I mean, I think johanna just likes to mess with people in general but (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i also can see johanna feeling like it's also a test of is this someone who i'm going to risk my life for Mm -hmm. is this person worth it just because the resistance says that she's worth it do i believe that she's worth it Mm -hmm. which is something that i appreciate johanna is that she is rebellious not just against the capital but against anyone who tries to tell her that they know better yeah Well, why don't we rebel against this property by saying what we see as missed opportunities? Yeah, so I was seeing that play was lacking maybe a little too much among the antagonists of Hmm. the series. I think you do see it in this creepy way with Dr. Gall, with her hippity-hoppity rhyming weird thing that she kept doing. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I know, it was creepy. (laughs) And, And I think it's a weird thing, but it does show that she has even if it's only humor to herself, she she has that sense of play and she really doesn't care if other people don't get it or not. Mm-hmm. But then I think Coin, I'm fine with her not having any play because I feel like it's very much in her character <laughs> yeah. to not engage with it or to even allow it in District 13 because everything is rationed and she's going to argue with Plutarch for days whittling down what can happen at this wedding you know so I, I think that that's fairly fitting but I think Snow President Snow by Canis's time you know he has all of the wealth and power but we never really see him enjoy it mm-hmm. and in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes I know when when they went out for drinking and the the Covey concert he thought at one point like I deserve to enjoy myself <laughs> which of course he would think that But I just kind of wonder, where is that attitude later? And I think it's common among antagonists in all sorts of books, movies, TV, to be this kind of cold, removed, calculated. But I don't really think that's how the antagonists of our society are. Mm. Most of them have the privilege of power and everything they need. And so then they can just do whatever they want and just engage in the height of hedonism right because there are no ramifications for anything they do and yeah nothing's really at stake for them and i think snow is very much in that position but we never really see him 
enjoy it. Yeah, and I think that's that's particularly pronounced in the movies where we aren't always in Katniss' point of view. Mm-hmm. And so they have a little bit more opportunity to give Snow some interesting characterization that they really don't do. They, they kind of show him as that cold calculating character that you, you mentioned, which the actor did a great job of portraying and, and, you know, it wasn't bad, but a missed opportunity perhaps of them being able to give him more character that they, they didn't really show. Yeah, because I know like even at the victory tour and feast banquet thing, he just made an appearance, made a little speech and didn't do anything yeah. else there, you know? And so I wonder when you have infinite resources and you see people in our world with infinite resources and how they spend their time or some of the awful things that they get up to and or they can even be so bored that it's like oh i need to go to the sahara and shoot some endangered species you know Mm. and yeah i'm just i'm curious what would he do for fun for play yeah I totally see that. What about you? What's your missed opportunity? I would have loved to see more of how and why things changed in District 12 between the 10th and 74th Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Because... What, you want another book? Yeah, I mean, that really... Is, most of my missed <laughs> opportunities for this series is just write more, more Suzanne Collins. <laughs> um, but we see, I think, some interesting distinctions. Weddings is a really good example of this, where the Covey talk about how they perform at weddings. And oftentimes they'll do so at multiple weddings at a time because people can afford them just for one wedding, mm-hmm. but that it's this kind of celebration. But by Katniss's time, it's really just the toasting, these small ceremonies where they toast some bread and kind of symbolize the Mm -hmm. the coming of these two individuals together. So I wonder, you know, what happened to lead to this? Katniss never talks about how the hob is used for dance parties and stuff (laughs) like that and musical performances. You know, is that a change that happened? And especially I'm interested in how that change occurred. You know, was this something that was kind of based off of top-down changes in enforcement or policy, where Snow started saying, oh, there's no more dance parties allowed, or peacekeepers became more aggressive in their policing. Or, over these 64 years, which is a sizable amount of time, were these more bottom-up cultural changes, where as they became more and more entrenched within the lifestyle of a district that is at the whims of the capital, do they have less desire or need, or have things changed in the way that they engage with music and the way they choose to create recreation. How did that come about from their own cultural perspective and, and, and yeah, those kinds of more gradual changes? I think these are questions that I would find interesting and, and able to be explored more if Suzanne Collins happened to write more books in this universe <laughs> that I would definitely read. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking a little bit about that as well. And I know at some point they mentioned something like a harvest festival. Mm. And I think that might have been at the end of the Victory Tour, like when they went back to District 12. And it was like, oh, they're having this little celebration. So it seems like maybe sometimes there's stuff, but nothing we ever yeah, get anything really concrete. Yeah, or substantive. Or, yeah, that, that's a better word for it, yeah. Well, then why don't we get into our takeaways? Well, I want you to go first because I want to hear all of your Olympic musings. Yeah. So um, one of the the big research projects I did in my graduate program was researching the 1932 Olympics. And in so doing, I found a lot more information about how the Olympics have 
how they came about to be in the modern era and, and the ways they've changed over time. And for one, they came about in 1896 as this kind of idea of sportsmanship and internationalism, but it was a... Sportsmanship, not sportspersonship. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. it was men only for the first eight, I think, Olympics. It very gradually expanded after that. And it was all extremely elitist. They had this idea what? of... Yeah, right? Shocking. Uh, you know, they could only be amateur Olympians, amateur athletes. So people who had the time and energy and resources to be able to do this as a hobby, not as a career. And so that was mostly going to be people who were wealthy, people who had the ability to train and had the resources to have trainers and have equipment. It also was extremely Eurocentric, where it was Europe, North America, and like two or three countries from around the world to those first couple of, uh, of games and then kind of expanded out from there. But it was always, yeah, we're going to do fencing and <laughs> polo and these other kinds of things. Sumo was not involved <laughs> or, you know, it was not a really internationalist kind of vision of athleticism. And so it already had this very Eurocentric elitist foundation to it, but they called themselves the Olympic Games because it was also about spectacle and it's about competition and it's about having a audience in particular after the 1932 Los Angeles Olympics it became about selling this using this as an advertising opportunity to get people to buy tickets to buy newspapers to want to visit want to visit to eventually buy corporate brands and the 1984 <laughs> Olympics also in Los Angeles happened to be the one that really turned the Olympics into the marketing opportunity that it is today so it wasn't just for global solidarity there was capitalism involved yes Funnily enough. Wow. Yes, indeed. And of course, the modern Olympics have all sorts of other structural issues they, they lay bare, where the development of new facilities and housing units and transportation things often come with a displacement and over-policing of local populations, uh, in particular low-income populations and populations of color. And sure, there's no, more tourism dollars coming in, but who is that benefiting? It's benefiting the elites. And so the Olympics becomes this thing that is about building spectacle as a way of directing money into the coffers of those who already have the most resources. Mm. And the Hunger Games don't do that. Except they do, kind of. <laughs> and so, yeah, seeing the Hunger Games as a kind of dystopian version of the Olympics is actually really fascinating to me because it, it does share a lot of these ideas that for most people, the Olympics are just this great thing that comes on every four years and they can see some amazing gymnasts or really great athleticism. And that's true. But there's also these other more insidious aspects to it that underlie it that are really problematic. Mm. And if you are ignorant of those problems, that itself is an issue. And if you are uncaring about those problems, that's even even bigger issue. Now you are willing to commodify the athletes who are participating, the communities this is displacing and over-policing, and all the other kinds of folks who are being negatively affected by this in order for your own entertainment and the profit of those who do not need to profit anymore. <laughs> right. And mm -hmm. the Hunger Games, I think, is a really interesting and useful metaphor for that and the way that we see entertainment and spectacle in ways that can so often be commodifying and objectifying of actual people. That is really fascinating. What about your takeaway? Yeah, so I think mine is just going to be simply that play is important, having fun, being able to have enjoyment, 
is not out of reach even in the most depressing of times and that it, i mean it kind of just reminds me of the dumbledore quote happiness can be found even in the darkest of times mm. if one only remembers charm the light and I, I don't think it can always be found depression is real all sorts of mental health issues are real and and so that oppression is real for sure yeah. so it, it, it can't always be but i think there are often times where things can be so much more manageable and we are able to cope with all sorts of hardships in our lives if we do remember to to lean into play and fun and levity the times that we can and and not not on the side of the capital where that's all we do (laughs) right but to to remember to do it as well yeah yeah it makes me grateful that we're able to do this we can have this cool podcast where even though we try to bring insightful commentary we're doing this because it's fun and Mm -hmm. interesting and we enjoy it and we hope that our audience enjoys it too and we like to engage with them and so it's a nice way of thinking about this absolutely well could you let us know what we'll be discussing next week when we return to Avatar and Legend of Korra. So we're going to be looking at the series through the theme of class. Okay, class in Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra. That'll be next week, but thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our social media on our website in the episode description, or you can go to patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to join our supporters who get access to all sorts of great extra content in exchange for helping to keep the show sustainable. We are so grateful to all of our supporters, and we hope that you join them. You could also help us out by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find us. I think we deserve a five-star review, but <laughs> I leave that in your hands. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out.